So what do you say? How do you respond when you hear the complaint, that's not fair? Parents know, right? What's the response, parents? Life's not fair. Yeah, you know it. And while we don't want to instill in our children when we say something like that, a sense of, uh, a, a, you know, hatred towards justice or a, a despairing of the world the way it is, we do want to communicate that, you know, there's a lot of things that don't seem to, to match up in our experience in the world. There's a lot of things that are unfair. And sometimes the decision right now is the right decision to be made. But what happens when we approach God and we feel like things that he does are unfair? What happens when we get the sense that that he's not dealing with us rightly or justly? We come to a passage that I have uh, sort of been fearing to come to for quite a long time because I have talked to many people that have struggled with God's dealing with Saul at this point. For we look at Saul's actions, and we can sympathize with him. We can put ourselves in his shoes. And then we can hear God's response to the prophet Samuel as harsh, as not understanding the whole context of what Saul has been going through. Is Saul the victim of a fickle God? I mean, is God's affection just sort of wavering now and again? As readers, we can fall into that same sense of being like Saul. Will we be set up like to fail? Was he, was he not given everything that he, he needed in order to succeed? And so that when judgment comes, he's overly criticized without context. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever been in a situation where you feel like you've you've not given what you need to succeed? I remember that really clearly in middle school. I was midway through the year placed into an algebra class, not having taught anything about algebra. And I remember the feeling needing to go to the board and complete a a problem and just thinking, why in the world are there letters in my math problem? And just that, the reticence I felt the rest of the year that, that I was missing something that I needed. I want us to connect with that in, in a way. How does that change our obedience? How does it change our obedience to God in, when, we, when we can't trust that he will deal with us fairly. If that's the case, if we feel like God is just going to respond, well, life's not fair, it's going to leave us discouraged and disillusioned. Now, when when we, we approach this text, I think one impulse for us is to quickly defend God, to get him off the hook, by simple solutions. But I want us to hang in the tension a little bit longer, to resonate with with what Saul is experiencing here. And only then can we back up 
not for a quick solution, but to see how the whole context of 1 Samuel, and indeed 1 Samuel's place in this book of redemption, can help us to see where he's gone off the rails. You see, the things that Saul has missed are things that we often miss when we, when we accuse God of being unfair. And if we can connect with the whole picture of what God has been working at here, we will see God's heart come through. A God, not, a God who wants us not to respond out of fear and to stay on our toes in obedience, but one who wants us to follow him in freedom and joy built on faith. So let's come now to this text. Let's try to understand it and let's ask God to bless our understanding. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray that you'll um, use this word in a very powerful way to speak to our hearts, to allow us to trust you, to walk by faith, and to see the true nature uh, that you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I have to admit, it is rather difficult to keep the theme of 1 Samuel alive. It's been a few weeks since we've looked last at chapter 12, and the, the pieces, the threads, seem to, to get frayed over the weeks. So just to, by way of reminder, backing up, we were first introduced to Saul in chapter 9. And however much you might remember Saul from your Sunday school days, Saul, at this point, was a relatively good character. In fact, I've been trying to illustrate how hardly anything Saul does here could be considered sinful or wrong. He's a relatively positive character. In fact, if anybody is uh, to blame, if there's any culprit in the first uh, several chapters so far, it is Israel. Israel as a people... They were the ones that rebelliously come to God and say, we want a king, rejecting God as his king. It's Israel as a nation that continues to demonstrate a lack of faith, whether it's trembling at the enemies around them or an inability to to follow God faithfully. And so we even saw in the last chapter, chapter 12, that they outright reject the prophet that God had appointed They basically tell Samuel to take a hike, that they've moved on. Saul, at worst, is a blank slate. In fact, the image we sort of get from Saul is that he is just uh, dependent on Samuel. And a a really good argument could be made that, that through the last several chapters, Saul is leaving his home and taking Samuel as his father which is uh, possibly why this chapter begins that with Samuel at one years old and taking the kingship at two years old, which doesn't match up with the, the narrative as a whole. It was he's entered a new family, a new household, in his dependence on Samuel. Even as this chapter begins, if we were in tune with this story that comes from the book of Judges, we see that Saul, Saul here is playing the Gideon character, which is a positive character. And we're set up to expect that things are really going to go well with Saul. 
He has shrunk his army down to a manageable size. He now divides it up. He blows the horn, and and all these symbols uh, hearken us back to what Gideon was doing. That's why when verse 13 comes, and Samuel brings this judgment from God, it is a complete shock. It's a shock to us as readers, and it was certainly a shock to Saul. Saul, from that reaction, gets very defensive. Let's set the situation. Why did, he act the way, why, why did he act the way he did? Well, this is about as dire a situation as you can see. The Philistines have grown their army to uh, enormous size. They are the bullies on the block. They have been advancing in technology, in military strength, in uh, power. That whole section about the blacksmith. Uh, and that from verse 19 onward, that seems like a random addition to the, to the story, really is to show you how dominant they were. They're the Golden State Warriors of the Middle East right now. If you haven't been following the NBA playoffs, you haven't missed much. The Warriors are 12-0. and 0. They're just destroying everybody in their path. That's the Philistines. Dominating to where Israel can only afford two swords in their entire nation. Because the Philistines have taken away all their blacksmiths. Israel has to go and beg the Philistines to sharpen their farm tools. The Philistines are, are just on, have their foot on Israel's neck. But now Saul decides he is going to fight. He is going to go up against this behemoth. And so he divides his forces. He takes 2,000 men and are going to approach uh, the Philistine uh, battle camp at Michmash. He will approach from one side. Jonathan will take 1,000 people, and they will attack from another side. They're going to go up against this big enemy. Jonathan attacks first. And when he does the ugly head of the Philistines roars. It turns. They have awoken the sleeping giant. And the Philistines now react with mustering 30,000 chariots. So if you're following along, that is over 10 times the size of an army now to attack this puny little Israel. Saul, it's his turn to fight now. He panics. All the people of Israel start fleeing for the hills. They're trembling and and start to leave the land. He knows he has to do something. So he goes to Gilgal, the place where the sacrifice could be made. And he remembers the thing that Samuel, his adoptive father, told him in chapter 10. In verse 8 of chapter 10, Samuel says, When you get to Gilgal, you wait there. You wait seven days, and then on the seventh day, I will show up, and I will perform a sacrifice, and then I will tell you what to do. And so Samuel musters up as much faith as he could, and he gets to Gilgal, and he waits seven days. But no Samuel. He's not there. 
And so, feeling compelled to act, Saul makes this sacrifice. There are two sacrifices. He begins with this, this first sacrifice, the burnt offering. And almost before he could even get to the next one, Samuel jumps out of the bushes and says, gotcha. You can almost feel Saul's face just being stunned. Where were you? And now you're going to accuse me of doing wrong? I mean, the way this narrative is told, it almost seems as though Samuel's just waiting for him to mess up. So that when he finally does, he can then just zing him. Is this fair? Are we sympathetic to Saul? Well, I want to look at three reasons why we can read this narrative as being unfair. Three things that Saul hits on himself as seeing why this is not fair, the way God treats him. And then after that, we will look at reasons why it is fair. Reasons, things that Saul should have keyed in on. But let's, let's look at the reasons why this, this really does seem unfair. First, the situation seems to be outside of Saul's control. I mean, look, the enemies are much bigger than Saul. He is supposed to go up against a superpower here. And God seems to be silent. And Samuel seems to be absent. You know what it's like to be held accountable for something, but not being in control of all the variables? Have you ever been that? And maybe in jo- at a job or Somebody tells you and gives you something to do and you're accountable to it. But there's so many other variables out there that you can't control. That's where Saul feels like at this time. So we can get sympathetic to him. Saul's being judged here, but there's no accounting for other circumstances. Secondly, it seems as though Saul's motives are good. I mean, he wants to, uh, to offer a sacrifice to God after all, right? He wants to do the religious thing. And even when he knows he's not the one to give the sacrifice, he even says in verse 12, I had to force myself to do this. Surely this is a minor offense, right? Sacrifice is needed. What's the big deal if he's the one that does it? I mean, he's God's anointed after all. Is it right for God to drop the hammer on such a minor thing? I just watched um, maybe the most powerful movie I I think I've seen in decades. (laughs) Martin Scorsese's movie Silence. If you haven't seen it, um, boy, prepare yourself. It is rough. It is about the um, 17th century missionaries going to Japan to bring the gospel in an area that um, is very hostile to the gospel. And the persecution that happens um, from the Japanese to the, what they fear is the influence of, of Westernism, um, but even the, the gospel. And the persecution to these, these uh, native Christians in Japan, forcing them to give up their faith. And the way that the, the um, persecutors have approached it 
makes it seem like such a minor thing. The, the cause, the, 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 the thing that they were used to force them to deny their faith was to just step on a picture of Jesus. Just trample. And the, the Inquisitor even says, you don't have to mean it. Just, just make a public step. And the theme that that movie raises is this question, is it really denying Christ if we do that? Would God really mind if I, if I make this outward display of rejection, but inwardly I'm still faithful? Especially if I could do it and it would save my life, but it, and it would also save the lives of others? Which is a question that movie raises. Is it fair for God to let us suffer over what seems like a small thing? Now, one of the brilliant things about that movie is it doesn't rush to answer that question, but it leads it in the air. It draws us out to think and to contemplate, is it unfair? What does it mean, really, to cross a line with God? That's sort of the thing that's hanging in the air with this passage. And thirdly, probably most disturbing is that Saul's rejection is contrasted with David's acceptance. We get a hint of David here, although he's not particularly named. He's the next king in line. But we see that God is going to choose someone now after his own heart. Now, you don't have to know much about the the Bible to know David's moral background is sketchy. I mean, David is throughout his life, one who will fall into adultery, polygamy, outright murder through jealousy. I mean, there's not a sin that he really doesn't seem to dabble in. How is he a man after God's own heart? And how is Saul, someone who's really trying to do good, rejected? Do you ever struggle with that? You know, what is God really looking for here? The poor Saul seems like he's missed the memo, that he's not included in on God's favorites. He's trying to, to do things that God would like, but, but his one little mistake gets him rejected. But David's many mistakes seem to pass by God and not, not any concern. I want to address this, uh, this one right off the bat because I do think it's a cause for a lot of um, trouble and, and anxiety from us. It's that phrase, a man after God's own heart. Because it makes it seem as though David has this soft spot, God has a soft spot for David, as if they're soulmates, and that he has some sort of axe to grind against Saul. But what does that phrase really mean? a man after God's own heart. Do you know this is the only place in the entire Old Testament that mentions a man after God's own heart in reference to David? But other times, when we hear something like this, it actually means that God chooses to set his heart on someone. It just simply means God is deciding for. Rather than... um, saying that he's someone whose heart matches God's heart, 
he's saying that this is someone God purposed to choose. You see, the heart was the center of decision-making in the Old Testament. This passage is just saying that God is replacing Saul's line. He's replacing his dynasty. Now remember, Saul here is not rejected as king. This isn't even the place where he is ousted from his role. And he's certainly not uh, condemned to hell at this point, if he ever is. No, this is just saying, you cannot set up your own dynasty here, Saul. From what you've done, I am now going to choose a different line. And I'm going to choose the line of David. In other words, God is taking over control of the kingship again. It will not be in Saul's hands. It will not be in Israel's hands. It will be in God's hands. I think that whole uh, reading of a man after God's own heart, that, that changes the tone of how you read this passage. It's less about a secret affection that God has with David, and then Saul sort of on the outside looking in, and more about God resuming control over Israel's future. He's the one that's going to make choices. It will be his heart that will decide where to go next in this dynasty. Well, okay, what about some of these other concerns? Is God not treating Saul unfairly? I want to speak to these, especially if you wrestle with that as well. God's fairness. Can you trust him to be fair with your obedience? And what happens if you don't? What happens if you can't trust that God will be fair to you in your obedience? Well, it will make you cautious and fearful. You will do only the things that you know you can do well, that you know yourself can succeed at. It will make you wary of that gotcha moment. If you were caught and the mitigating circumstances around what you're doing doesn't get taken into concern. It'll make you defensive and demanding towards others. If you can't trust that God will be fair to you, then you will start to become the fair police and appoint that for, or, and, uh, and impose that upon other people so that they can follow a strict fairness making sure that others live up to a standard so there will be no biases. These are impulses that we will see play out in Saul's life as he pursues David, who he becomes very jealous of, as he becomes insecure about his own kingship and his reign. But is he right? Is God really treating him unfairly? Again, we have to step back and look at this story as a whole because Saul is really missing something. He's not connecting with something that has been a major theme throughout. I want to look at four things that Saul is missing here. Four things that lead him to to this rejection. And they fit into the greater story of redemption that's been going on in 1 Samuel. So first, the first thing that Saul lacks is faith. Now, if I could summarize the book of 1 Samuel in one line, it's that God is calling his people to walk by faith and not by sight. 
That has been almost in every single story the ongoing theme. It was there at the very beginning when when little Hannah and her uh, meager uh, offering before the Lord gets heard and rewarded. It was there when the young child Samuel was was facing um, uh, the the greater powers that be. And it was there all throughout Israel's story in the first several chapters of this book. We learned the point that those who prosper are not the strong or the mighty, but those who have faith. So it doesn't matter if you're weak or insignificant. You should never tremble simply at the size that you have or the resources that you have. Saul's failure isn't due to the fact that he was placed in an impossible situation. Do you hear that? Saul's problem wasn't that he was placed in an impossible situation. Rather, he believed that the situation was impossible because he only looked by eyes not of faith, but of this world. He only saw the resources that he brought to the table, and he only saw the size of the enemy. The whole reason why Israel's request for a king was sinful was because Israel denied this identity that they had. They had all of God's promises. That God would be their God. They didn't want to depend on him. They wanted to depend on themselves, their work, their military, their strategy. Saul took it upon himself to offer a sacrifice because he believed there was no one around him to give him what he needed. So he stepped in, all alone. But the whole point of 1 Samuel is he's never alone. That no matter how weak he is, it's God who wins the battle. No matter what kind of resources he brings to the table, God had made the promises. He's the one that had the track record. In that moment that he offers this sacrifice, Saul denies the fact that God had made the promise always for Israel to win the victory over the Philistines. He doesn't have faith. He's simply acting like any other leader of any other country, denying his covenant identity. Secondly, he lacks true submission to God's word. Now this is really surprising because he's a very religious person. He's offering a sacrifice to God. He's doing the right thing. Now like many of us who succeed by doing the right thing, we can take pride in the fact that we follow the rules. When we follow the rules, it can protect us against accusation. Who's going to bring a charge against me? I'm in the right. I didn't do anything wrong. And yet we see Saul sacrificing here really as a way to manipulate God. When you sacrifice, whether it's giving your time or your money, what you're doing is not currying God's favor. It's supposed to acknowledge that God gave you everything in the first place. That he's the owner of everything. If you are under compulsion when we take an offering here to give or fear not giving because somehow 
God's pleasure or favor would waver upon that, please don't give. Our motive, as as even Jesus says in the New Testament, the Lord loves a cheerful giver, is to give out of a heart that knows that God loves us and has provided all things for us. When we obey God simply to manipulate him or to have him serve our ends, we've undone everything that he calls us to do. You see, for Saul, sacrifice was the essential thing, but obeying Samuel was something he could abandon. You know, Samuel does show up there on the seventh day. Saul does not wait the full time. But it's more than just a matter of hours. It's a matter of saying, what did he think was expendable? And for him, it was trusting in God's word. Doing the religious things was something he had to hold on to. But trusting God's word when the chips were down was indispensable. Thirdly, he lacks spiritual leadership. It could be that one of the reasons he gives this sacrifice is because hordes of Israelites were starting to flee. And he wants to, in some way, get them back under threat that God is watching. He wants to convince them by giving this sacred right to act almost like a guilt trip. I had a professor in seminary who, whenever the, crowd, whenever the class got a little too rowdy, um, that seemed to happen a lot in that class, he would uh, get to the microphone and say, let's pray. Now, a good seminarian is not going to talk over a professor who is praying, right, for fear of being seen as a bad Christian. But what's the point here? However much this crisis was happening in Israel, there was a deeper spiritual problem going on. Do you see what Israel is doing at this point? They're fleeing crossing the Jordan. What are they doing? They are going themselves into exile. They are giving up their spiritual identity. What do they need at this point? They don't need a guilt trip. They don't need the hammer to be dropped and say, oh, God's going to hurt you for this. They're wavering in their spiritual identity. They need a leader. They need someone to come in here, not to invoke God's name, but they need someone to come in here and remind them of who they are as a covenant people. I mean, this is tempting for us parents too, right? Our kids disobey. Let's bring in a little God here to straighten things out. Hey, God won't like that if he sees you doing that. Okay, parents, you know, we all admit we've done that at some point. Bring in God to, to, to ratchet up the tension a little bit Insert a little guilt into the situation. Guys, it works. But what are we doing? What our kids need there is a reminder of who they are. That their actions are actually denying the baptism that they've been given. That they're the true children of God. That he has so much better on offer for them. 
Saul needed to lead them back to faith to establish their actions based on promises, not on their independence. The final thing that Saul lacked is personal accountability for his sin. Look at all the excuses that he's able to cram in in one verse. In verse 11, he's able to say it's the people's fault for scattering. It's Samuel's fault for not coming when he said he would. And it's the Philistines' fault for attacking. How dare they? But this level of defensiveness points out a deeper problem. You see, Saul is desperate to manage his own righteousness. He wants to avoid blame. He wants to avoid any sin that's in himself because that would make him vulnerable. And if he's not righteous, then God won't secure his victory. In a word, Saul is living in fear. Everything, all his actions in this section show his hand that he's acting out of fear. Fear's driving his relationship with God. He has no sense that that he's following a God of redemption. He has no concept that that the God who's been acting here all the way through 1 Samuel is a God of promises. And the chief promise that he makes is that he will redeem his people, his broken, sinful people. When we get defensive... When we bring up excuses, we deny grace. That's what we're doing. We can't see the good news that's there. That that acknowledging our sin, repenting of it, now puts us in favor with God. Opens us up finally to be able to hear the gospel. But this quote by Brian Chappell in the front of your bulletin, it says it so well. He begins by saying, The assumption that God only loves the righteous. The assumption that many of us make that God is only going to love you when you can establish your own righteousness. When you can appear worthy of of His favor. The assumption that God only loves the righteous will tempt me to hide from him and myself the flaws under a public veneer of my character and my fears of deeper failures. However, when I know that God will not turn away from me when I unabashedly cry out for his pity, then I am more willing to acknowledge the monsters of my sin, the monsters of sin of my own heart, such honesty moves God to pity us in our desperation, even as the knowledge of his grace makes us willing to cry out for his pardon. That's a heart that knows the gospel, and it blows up our paradigms of of God's fairness and unfairness. (coughs) Instead of having this burden that we need to be defensive and preserve our own righteousness in order for God to actually love us and care for us. If we live that way, we're going to be living out of fear, and we will obey out of fear, only doing what we, can do to, what we know we can control and succeed. But when we go out of faith, 
we recognize that God has already loved us. That righteousness we have doesn't come from ourselves. In fear, we have to establish our own righteousness because we can't trust that God will be fair. In faith, we understand that he's already gotten to the core of our sin. He's already seen the ugly monsters, and he's already dealt with it. This is how we move from fear to freedom. This is how we walk by faith. This is the contrast between Saul and Jonathan and David. Look at how this unfolds in this narrative. Walking by faith. Walking by faith isn't a mystery. (coughs) Walking by faith isn't just going out and having confidence in doing whatever foolish thing you do will work out. It never means simply blind optimism. That is not walking by faith. It is foolish to go out and be ambitious and bold when there is no grounding in any of those claims from God and God's word. This is the difference between a health and wealth gospel that says, go out and just try and live in faith and God will provide and bless your ways. Well, not if he hasn't promised it. But, but, the biggest problem we face is not fully appropriating the promises that God has made. We live out of fear because we don't understand the promises he's already guaranteed for us. (coughs) Walking by faith changes the order of how we understand God's promises. We don't obey in order for him to give in on those promises. We obey based fully on those promises. They are established. They come already accomplished by Christ. In the next chapter, which I didn't have us read, we'll see Jonathan, Saul's son, takes one other person, his armor bearer, and goes up against a small uh, faction of the Philistine army that outnumbers them, basically 20 to 1. And they say, God is with us. God, now they could say this, God has promised us victory. And then they even do a little test to make sure that once, it, once it's confirmed from God, they go forward and, like Chuck Norris, slaughter this whole group. It is amazing. Read chapter 14 when you get a chance after, after this. See, Jonathan is acting as the perfect foil to his father's faithlessness. You notice how those divided armies in two, Jonathan has the smaller army, and yet he's there first on the battlefield, attacking this huge Philistine encampment behind enemy lines. What's the point? The point's not to act reckless or adventurous, but to base your life on promises that God has already made. We often get held back doing this by putting power in those external circumstances in our life. But walking by faith puts the power back in God's hands, not ours. 
not the circumstances. God is the one who is responsible for the outcome of the things that he's promised. So what promises do we have? What are the promises that you need to walk in faith with? Well, we don't have the same promises that Israel did. We weren't promised victory over our physical enemies. We're not promised to have military might or or success at our jobs. But the thing we have to convince ourselves of and the New Testament's perspective is those were just weak shadows of the better things that Christ now offers us. This is what Paul is getting at in Romans 8 in that New Testament passage. What an awesome passage. He says, we now must not walk according to the flesh, i.e. being secular, without God or His Spirit in the world, but rather we must live according to the Spirit. That means we are all, he says, sons of God. For we did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but received a spirit of adoption as sons. So that we can cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs. Heirs of God and heirs with Christ. Paul's saying that's who you are. Those are promises that you don't have to earn. That's something you are in light of what Christ has done. That's your identity. Does that inform your day-to-day life? Does it? Does it inform your life? Does it inform your life that you are an heir of all things? You see, when we don't let God shape our world, when we don't let God shape our self-image, we let the world bring in and give us definition of who we are and where we stand. But that's power that only belongs to God. He has said, you are his child. You have His Spirit in you. You are the heir of all things. How would that dictate your life if you lived like it? If that's the promise you walked on, how would it change your day if you went to work knowing that at the end of the day, you're a billionaire? In fact, that you actually own the company. Well, all of a sudden, the little criticisms that come your way during the day don't matter so much. There was that old TV show. I didn't watch it, but I saw enough commercials to feel like I watched the whole thing. Undercover Boss, right? So the boss goes undercover at the Starbucks or the, the, the place that he's the owner of the business. And he's working there. And, you know, how's he going to take his boss's criticisms of him? It's not going to attack his self-worth. It's going to cause him to think, well, maybe I should fire this guy when I get out of this job. Um, But it's not going to grapple at his identity. We have tied our identity too much to how much the world sees us and frames us. Saul's letting all the situations of his life, the enemies that he faces, God's requirements of him, dictate how he views his life. It's not resting on the promises of who he is. If you feel like you lack significance in your work, 
that God has put you in something that, that doesn't bring meaning, that seems of very little value. Are you letting God speak into it? Or are you letting the world dictate the significance of your job? Yes, we know that we're forgiven. Yes, we know that God loves us. But very few of us actually put that into practice day after day. Richard Lovelace puts it this way. Very few of us know how to start each day standing on the platform of a righteousness that comes not from ourselves, but comes from outside of us. When our righteousness comes from outside of us, then that means that that righteousness is never in doubt, never at risk, never dependent on external circumstances. This is the life of freedom that God desires from you. This opens us up to obey God, not out of fear that he's going to punish us, but with a freedom that says he's already given me everything. It's an offer that Saul could not grasp. But will you? Let's pray.